Hello, I'm Avi Kaufman, founder of Shortcast Club. Welcome to the second episode of our weekly Best Of podcast. Each week, I'll highlight a few of our favorite episodes from Shortcast Club, our free app that's chock full of binge-worthy short podcasts. We have over 5,000 episodes now, most around one to three minutes. So you can listen anytime you have a few minutes free, or if you just want variety, valuable insights, and inspiration. Today, we'll highlight eight episodes from this week. First up, an episode of Trivium U, Timeless Training for Professional Communicators by Dr. Ben Crosby, available on Shortcast Club and Spotify. In this quick 36-second episode, Dr. Crosby gives a tip on how to make your logic more persuasive when speaking. You've established your ethos well right up front. Now, how do you make sure that your logos comes through loud and clear? Two things. Number one, your evidence needs to be good, recent, reliable, and relevant to the topic at hand. And change it up a little bit. Have data, have studies, have numbers, but also include testimonies from experts, anecdotes from your own experience. That's all great. But number two, and this is what people forget, offer some explanation to your audience of how the evidence you've provided supports and reinforces the claims you're making. They love that reassurance that the evidence is good, that it can be relied upon. If you do that, your logo strategy will be strong. Next up, a four-minute episode from Eden Gold's excellent podcast, Life After High School, Your Ultimate Guide to Thriving in Adulthood. In this episode, she gives very practical, actionable advice on how to grow your professional network. How to build a strong professional network. Look, I get it. You guys are young professionals. You want to get your dream career. You want to build a business. You want to set yourself up on a path to early financial retirement, financial freedom. You want to learn some skills that school never taught you because school didn't teach you half the sh- you need to know in adult life. What do you do? Stay tuned because my page, on my page, we talk all about this stuff. My name is Eden Gold. I'm your TikTok big sister and TikTok's adulting expert. And on my page, we talk all things how to set you up for success in adult life. So let's get into it. The first concept I want you to understand is the six degrees of separation. Also, don't look at my missing nail or look at it, whatever. This is the theory that any person on this planet can be connected to another person on this planet through a series of acquaintances. We are all connected. And even if somebody that you want to reach in your or have in your professional network is someone who you never thought was possible to reach, a celebrity, famous person, highly influential person, so on and so forth, you have the ability to connect to them. So just get it in your mind that it is possible. Two, I want you to make a list, a list of your top 20 people that you would like to connect with, people who you would like to collaborate with. And you can make this list sort of like this. I'm going to lay it out for you. You're going to write the name of that person in the next column. You're going to label them or rate them on a scale of one to 10, how well you know this person. And in the next one, you're going to rate them on a scale of 10 of how likely they are to help you. And you're going to tally it up at the end. And whoever has the highest tally mark at the end, that's who you're going to attack first. I'm going to give a quick shout out to my mentor, Jen Gottlieb and Chris Winfield, the founders of Super Connector Media, for giving me this sort of framework to use for this. If there is somebody you already know who you can connect with about your offer, your small business, what you want to do for a career, who can help you advance your career, reach out to them. Reach out to them. And if you don't know what to say, I recommend using ChatGPT, the world's most just latest AI revolutionary device that's basically something that can do everything you want for you. 
online, check it out, and they can write up a little introductory um, message for you. Start reaching out to people who can already connect you to who you want to be connected to or who you already want to connect to. Now, if it's somebody that you don't know, um, but you know someone who knows them or know someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows them, or maybe it's a famous person, you're going to have to do a little bit more work to sort of make yourself seem valuable to that person. It's the law of reciprocity. When you do something for somebody else, even if you don't expect anything in return, which you shouldn't, that person subconsciously feels like they need to return the favor. And that can happen in your favor. So if there's somebody that you want to get into your unit or connected with who's a high net worth individual, somebody who's really high up in the career that you want to be in, find that person online, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever, and Become a valuable person to them. Buy their books, go to their seminars, like their posts, share their posts, tell your friends about their posts, and really have yourself be known to this person over a period of time so they can start to think about you and see you whenever they check their social media profile, so on and so forth. And then after a period of time, two, three, four months, then you can head into their inbox and you can send a message to attempt to get connected with them. And you never know what's going to happen with this. So that's how I recommend trying to do that. The last thing I'm going to share with you in this video is something very simple. You can go on Eventbrite, you can go on um, Facebook events, and you can find people who are hosting business meetings, seminars, whatever seminar in the industry you want to get into, and you can start to connect with individuals that way, typically for free, if not a really small fee, um, in-person networking groups and networking events or online over Zoom. So I would recommend going to those as well just to start making connections. If you want to learn a little bit more of a not all over the place in depth of what I was talking about before and the six degrees of separation, comment down below and let me know and I'll kind of break it up for you more. But that's sort of the basics that I encourage you focus on over the course of the next 30 days and just see how many connections that you make. But start with that top 20 list so you can see where you should start to attack first, right? So Hope that was helpful in creating your professional network and comment all your questions down below. For our third track, a two minute episode from Samantha Chung's podcast, Simplifying Sam, the Shortcast. Some really radical and insightful observations on the spirit of creativity. I love this one in particular because, well, we are a community of creators for creators. So listen for yourself. Okay, you can't create something and hope that it's good because good and bad don't exist within the realm of creativity. Good can only exist if you remain in the paradigm of comparison and judgment, which guarantees you are never good because there is always something subjectively better based on some sort of arbitrary measurement or standard that you've been conditioned to believe, which keeps you on the wheel of never enough. And so don't you see, it's all a trap. There is no good, there is no bad when it comes to creation. And so if you created something, whether it be a line of poetry or a meme, there's no way of knowing whether that's good or bad. The only thing you need to know is whether you enjoyed creating it. And if you had the intention of making people feel good by creating it. This is the only way to remain an artist in a world that constantly tries to compare and judge you against other people. And to be an artist in this world is the most radical fucking thing you can do. Because it's way easier for people to remain in power if you just constantly keep repeating things that they've already done. If you become a radical creator, then you realize how powerful you are. So keeping you from creating by keeping you stuck in a paradigm of like you thinking whether it's good or bad or whether you're worthy of creation, like that just keeps you away from your own power, which is in not to create good things. It's just in to create anything. And so I challenge you to create just because you can. Doesn't it blow your mind that you can just have an idea and 
make it. That's astounding. That's magnificent. That's divine. We're the only beings that can do that. And you're sitting there wondering if it's good or bad without realizing how effing radical and magical it is that you even did it in the first place. And so you got to take off your conditioned lens of like, this is good and this is bad and this is better and that's worse. And just look at everything with the eyes of a child. I used to color outside of the lines and think I did amazing because I couldn't believe that I could pick up a crayon and do something with it. And so that is the spirit of creativity. It's wow, I can do something. I can make something. And if judgment is what always follows your creativity, then your creativity will stop following you. Our fourth track is a one minute episode from Minyanka, a trauma-informed relationship and life coach, speaking about how relationships require flexibility, compassion, and compromise. The most unrealistic expectation that I see in relationships is people expecting their relationship to be a 50-50 split all the time. That is whether financial, emotional, whatever it is that you are expecting your partner to meet you halfway with. That is not realistic. The truth is sometimes it's going to be 90, 10, 80, 20, 70, 30, depending on what each of you are going through at that time. You have to remember that relationships are made up of individuals who are having their own individual experience and allowing those times of where you are giving more than the other person to not make you feel superior to them, but to be that this is a partnership and right now I'm giving more in whatever area that you are. There's going to come a time where that is going to flip and this is where you allow flexibility in your relationship and self-compassion and compassion for your partner. One minute episode by Tyson Matrux, a well-known injury attorney in Missouri, about the importance of taking time to think and not rushing into things. All right, so I want to give you one of the best pieces of business advice I could give anybody. Uh, and most of you won't take this advice, but you need to. I just talked about it on the podcast. And take some time. This is what it is. Take some time to just think. So the hustle and bustle of everyday life, it's real. I get it. It's its something that it's, it's hard to ignore. But set aside an hour a week, just an hour, just to think about your marketing. Think about your cases. Think about the business. How can you improve it? Okay, how can we help our employees? How can we help our clients? So start to just take some time and just think about things and you're going to see how your business is going to start to transform and get better. I promise you, it's going to help. Six up, an episode of Don't Just Win, Dominate by Bill Harper, a marketing and branding leader who really you need to hear. Today, in just three minutes, he walks us through a live example of reimagining a brand. How can we take a brand that's doing traditional sort of status quo show and tell or descriptive advertising and turn them into storytellers. I get this question all the time. Today I'm going to show you an example. Now, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. This is not one of our clients. This work is not real. I found a brand that I happen to be familiar with and I think has a really solid platform line, but is doing work that is really safe and really traditional. We grabbed some images online that we felt illustrated the point and threw them into a quick layout to show you what it is that we meant when we said making the pivot to storytelling, but this is not final work. It is not our imagery, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, enough of the disclaimer. Let's get on to seeing what we got. So today we're talking about Baby Brezza. It's a brand that I really like. They make a phenomenal line of products that help parents with young children make food prep a snap. That's their whole point. And they have a great 
line in this idea about parenting is easier with baby Bratza. But unfortunately, their advertising is incredibly traditional. You have a picture at the top of happy mom, happy baby, presumably because food prep was so easy the baby never had a chance to get upset. And you've got a bunch of the real estate of the ad talking about the product. So your eye kind of bounces all over the place and there's not really a good hierarchy. But more importantly, there's not really a story here that I can relate to. It's just an end solution where we're being descriptive. But what if instead we turned up the volume on the story? Now here's an image that we found online that I think really captures what it feels like to be a parent in a busy household. Now obviously it's an exaggeration, but that's what makes advertising fun, is taking it to an extreme. So we're, here we have a mom and a dad and the kids are all over the place and the house is on fire and all the rest of it. And at those moments where we feel like one more thing would tip us over the edge, baby Bretza really comes through and shines, right? So when we make parenting easier, in this format, we're telling a great story that people can really relate to and feel the benefit of the brand. Another way that we could do it would be to point out the fact that when you're not around because you're making food, who knows what the kids are up to? And again, it's a super exaggeration. Of course, parents know where their kids are and what they're up to. But the bottom line is every parent has felt this way at one point in time or another. So these kids putting concrete into the toilet to see what will happen next is what might potentially be happening in the background while you're busy making food. The layout is very specific. The majority of the real estate is done with the story so that we can relate to it. The headline is prominent and the food, uh, uh, sorry, the product image is off to the side and set aside to do its role in bringing our attention to our product line and what we do to solve for it, but it doesn't take up real estate and fight with the imagery. Now, every brand in the world has the ability to tell stories this way. They simply have to be willing to do it. And the time it takes to create great stories doesn't have to be forever. The point is, what is the biggest pain point that your consuming audience feels, and how can you show them that you truly understand it? Here's a couple of examples of a way that we might take a company like Baby Bretza and show exactly that. Your brand can too. This seventh episode is a little different. Unlike most of our episodes, which are one to three minutes, this is an 18-minute episode made using the asynchronous conversation feature in our app. You should check that out. It's really cool. Mystery writer Carol Goodman Kaufman interviews author Dale Phillips in her podcast, Murder We Write. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 13 of Murder, We Write. I'm your host, Carol Goodman Kaufman. On this podcast, I talk with crime writers whose short stories and novels run the gamut from cozies to domestic thrillers. We'll learn from them about their craft, their process, and the business of writing. My guest today is Dale Phillips. Although Dale has worked for over 30 years as a technical writer, he has also worked as a farm laborer, bait salesman, yard worker, factory assembler, busboy, holiday Santa, and even as a blackjack dealer, among a host of other jobs. In his spare time, he has published novels, over 70 short stories, collections, articles, jokes, and poetry, and has appeared on stage, television, and in an independent feature film. So welcome Dale Phillips to Murder We Write. My first question to you is, we say always write what you know, but you write about many different places on the globe. How do you do that? 
Carol, thanks for having me on. Yes, the idea of variance in a writer's background is a great thing. Since I've traveled to all 50 states and about halfway around the globe, it's easy to come up with uh, stories, situations, and characters that reflect uh, many experiences which kind of get mixed together and yet uh, give a flavor of different cultures, uh, different attitudes, uh, different places. I like to set my novels in places that I know of, uh, such as Maine, my very beloved Maine where I grew up. Uh, I've also uh, got one set in New Jersey, uh, one set in the Arizona desert, one set in the Canadian wilderness, and uh, one set in eastern Ohio. And my stories, of which I've had over 80 published, are all over the place. Some historical, some futuristic, some present day, but they're a mix of different ideas and different situations of all sorts of genres. I do, I do mystery, fantasy, horror, science fiction, magic realism, and even some nonfiction. And it's great to have so much material to work with that you're never at a loss for ideas. When you need to come up with a story, it's, uh, you look into the old titles and ideas sections of what you've saved, and you go, there, that's what I like. We had a conversation at uh, one conference where people were saying that when mystery writers do a series, the first series, it's usually a reflection of something that they're very familiar with. Like Hank Phillippe Ryan uh, did a reporter, scrappy reporter who gets into mysteries, and they go, well, that's perfect, that's Hank. And Steve Ulfelder did, uh, I'm kind of a race car enthusiast, and a, a guy who's uh, hard-nosed and gets into trouble. And, okay, that's Steve. And after a couple more, they turn to me, and I go, uh, well, I write about an alcoholic ex-con that's full of rage and guilt. And it stopped the conversation cold. <laughs> people, people do that. And, and I go, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Really, it's, um, it's just fiction. <laughs> that's, that's not me. But it makes for interesting conversation when you can do that. Not that I know, uh, have personally been in prison, but have talked to some people uh, who have been in and have uh, actually uh, documented the struggle of people with substance abuse issues, such as my Zach Taylor in the uh, Zach Taylor series set in Maine. And people tell me that I got it right. Yes, that is the struggle that we have every day. And you've had so many jobs, Dale. So I have a two-part question here. Which of all the many jobs you've had, holiday Santa, blackjack dealer, bait salesman, were your favorites? And which, if any, have influenced your writing the most? Carol, I'd have to say that working in resort hotels all over the country was probably my favorite job and the most instructive as to all different classes of people, rich and poor, uh, across all strata of society and culture. And that gave me a, a great background of seeing that there's a lot of rich people who aren't happy and a lot of people without any money that are quite content with the way things are going. So that was a, an eye-opening experience. And I worked in some beautiful resorts all over the country and had a great time. I was able to use many of the facilities that the guests did and get paid for it instead of paying for it. So that was fun. Dealing blackjack is also fun because 
I love the psychology of gambling, of what makes people take risks, what makes people spend money, and uh, how people react to adversity and good fortune. That was fun. And, of course, the holiday Santa was, was also a good one because you love to see children when they're not crying, but happy, actually, and interacting with the Santa and just beaming afterwards, feeling like they've done something really cool in life. That was a lot of fun. There's, uh, everything goes into what I write. I call it the big sausage factory. Your experiences, your views and opinions, everything gets thrown into this giant mixture, and some odd spice comes in from who knows where. And when you grind it up and then send it out, you're never sure what it's going to be like because no two things come out the same. And yet a lot of times it's interesting and it's got great flavor. And if you've put the right ingredients in, you've got something that's going to appeal to uh, different tastes, most definitely. And yes, uh, I think like the education of Louis L'Amour and other writers, the wide and varied background is excellent for being able to write a variety of different genres and characters and uh, tropes, actually. So have you ever had a Santa involved in a murder? Ah, uh, yes, I have. Uh, I've done a couple of stories. One with um, a woman who hates Christmas because her husband died on, on Christmas, and a fake Santa's involved, which is actually a Krampus, if you know the legend of that. And I have another story, uh, just uh, your plain old uh, mystery story, about a uh, policeman new to town who has to work the Christmas shift. And he comes out and he finds a dead Santa, and he has to try to find out uh, who killed Santa. So I have other stories planned, too. I plan on an entire uh, holiday-themed uh, Christmas collection when I can get the rest of the stories done. I've done about three or four, so when the rest come out, we'll be seeing that. Dale, one of the blurbs on your book, Shadow of the Wendigo, describes it as where crypto fiction meets horror. Can you describe for my listeners what crypto fiction is? Carol, uh, cryptids are strange, possibly supernatural animals that haven't quite uh, been identified as being real. Things like uh, Bigfoot, uh, for example, uh, other uh, chupacabras, uh, certain items like that. And Lauren Coleman, who runs the Cryptozoology Museum up in Maine, is uh, uh, probably the foremost authority on uh, cryptids. And the idea of the Wendigo is that it is a winter spirit which epitomizes uh, starvation in the winter, being trapped and having to feed. And unfortunately, like the Donner Party, when there's only one source of food, that becomes the worst taboo that we as humans know to most societies. And I wanted to explore that as a psychological mechanism for what happens with people of especially Native American tribes who came up with this uh, Wendigo uh, myth. And it is very widespread across the North Central United States and Canada. It is uh, common to the Algonquin, Cree, and Ojibwa tribes, and it's been around for hundreds of years. And so 
it's such a powerful metaphor for what happens in the wilderness in the winter when, you know, snow's on the ground for like six months of the year, and it's very easy to get trapped without provisions. But what happens psychologically to someone who is forced to survive by consuming other people? And I think it's a cracking good adventure yarn as well. But that's the one that people say, how long did it take to write? And it took 35 years because it was the first book I completed, but it wasn't good enough. And I didn't have the skill yet to be able to fix it, to bring it up to where it was. And it took a lot of years and other books in between getting written and published before I could come back to that with the elements that finally fell into place and were able to make it the tale I wanted. Now, at the time, I had not read Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey and his mythology explorations. But when I finished the book and then read some Joseph Campbell, I went, oh, goodness, I've written the perfect hero's journey. Oh, well, here we are. We have all the characters. We have the trickster, the coyote. Uh, we have the mentor. We have the, uh, the sidekick. We have the hero himself who goes into the land of the dead and returns with the knowledge that he needs to defeat the monster. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> and like I say, when it takes that long to write, you've got to make sure it's good by the end of it. Well, thanks for uh, clarifying that. I've read the William Kent Kruger novel, Windigo Island, but never realized that the wind was a krypton. Krypton? I tend to stick with more or less real people, although I do love a sentient dog, as was the character 630 in the book Lessons in Chemistry. You can't go wrong with a dog. Now, back to writing. Tell me how you go about starting a book or a short story. Do you outline? Do you do storyboards? Do you take photographs from magazines to inform how your characters look? Great question, Carol. Everybody wants to know how, how books are begun. Where do you get the idea? With my Zach Taylor series, everything is a quote from something in literature or life. Uh, we start with the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest story known to us. And there was a quote from that that really struck me. It's a, the story about a king whose friend is killed and he goes off the rails. And I thought, there's a, there's a great metaphor for something that happens. And I found the quote uh, from the Epic of Gilgamesh, A Memory of Grief. And that became the first book. Now, when I start one of these, uh, other, other subsequent titles have been from Emily Dickinson, quotes from the Bible, uh, uh, even uh, the, the last words of Sir Walter Raleigh. Everything is thematic. The quote is the theme of the book, and the cover has an illustration of a stone angel representing that theme as well. So everything is tied together, and, you, and I will know the start from the quote, and sometimes I will know the end as well. And then it's the process of getting through that story arc from the beginning of it with that powerful start and coming up with a powerful ending and making sure that the middle is up to snuff as well. Uh, other novels have just come from certain ideas. Uh, I had, you know, the Wendigo obviously was a very powerful myth I encountered when I was young and has always stuck with me. Other ones have sprung from places I've been, like the uh, Desert Heat is set in the Arizona desert, which I spent some time out in Phoenix, and struck me as a very different world and one that needed to be recorded within the annals of mystery genre. 
There's Neptune City, of which I just like the name, and there was a great piece on YouTube about the song, and it just struck me. It was so ethereal and different, and I just started writing it, and I was influenced by Dave Daniel, who wrote a book, Reunion, about someone who comes back to their town and has to deal with the old issues. And my issue in this book is, what if somebody left that town, became a detective, and comes back and has to now solve a murder that occurred when he was 18, just before he left the town? I thought that was a lot of fun. So some of them, the stories especially, I write without ever knowing what's going to happen to it. I just have a title, a character, or a scene, and I start writing, and I just don't know where it's going to go. Those are a lot of fun. And what about your characters? How do you envision them? Do you model them on people you know, people you see in the news, on screen? Most of my characters are drawn strictly from my imagination, not from real-life people or amalgamations of them, except for a noted few. I find that when you're creating someone, you can give them the motivations and put them in the stories you want to Whereas real-life people don't always fit those categories. I mean, I've met a lot of very interesting people in my lifetime, but, you know, do I want to write about them being murdered or eaten by monsters? In most cases, no. Although, you know, when someone does cross my path and rub me the wrong way, sometimes they do end up uh, coming out badly in some of my stories. One never knows. So you should always be nice to writers. A, because we can put you in something to ruin your reputation. Or B, we also spend a lot of time plotting murders and how to get away with them. Just saying. So what are you working on now, Dale? Well, I've already put out a uh, short story collection this day, at the start of this year and a uh, novel, my 10th novel. Right now, I'm working to complete a draft of... Uh, a non-fiction book of how to sell more books because most of the writers we run across say, how can I sell more books? There must be a way. Yes, there are many techniques. The trouble is they are time-consuming, they take a lot of work, and they're best when they're used together. So if you're putting all your energies into marketing and selling more books, you're maybe not putting as much time into your craft as, as you want to. So... I'm focusing to get this done before I start another big project, such as another novel, my 11th novel, but I'll probably do some short stories first to bang the rust off and get back in the groove. So that's what we've got going on currently. Also, I'm doing a lot of interviews this year and going to some more shows. I went to Malice Domestic this year, and that was a terrific conference down in Maryland in the spring. Met a lot of great people there. A lot of excellent writers, and uh, learned a lot of things. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dale, and for sharing with us your incredibly varied writing life and work history. Will we maybe see you in a big red suit in the shopping mall this Christmas? Well, when I was doing it before, I had to use a uh, pillow to uh, because it was a rather thin Santa at the time, and now I much more fit the role except for the beard. But uh, no, my, my days as a Santa are hopefully done uh, because I have so much else on my plate trying to give the people of the world, not just children, all of these stories which are my gifts to them. 
Carol, thank you so much for hosting me, and uh, thank you everybody for listening, and I hope to see you again in the future. Please check me out at www.daletphillips.com. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Please join me next time for episode 14 of Murder We Write. Who will our guest be? That's a mystery. Now for our final and eighth episode of this week, something completely different, an episode of Auntie Matrix, available on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere else. In this spooky episode, Jess shares a number of weird Glitch in the Matrix stories. Enjoy. Let's read some Glitch in the Matrix stories, part 147. The house haunted with too many ghosts to count. I lived in a house that was haunted with what I believed to be multiple entities. I was 24 when I first moved in, and it seemed pretty normal except for two things. I was always unexplainably a bit weirded out with the shower that was in my bathroom connected to the master bedroom, so I often used the guest bathroom. It always felt like someone was watching me whenever I tried to shower in that bathroom. I am convinced that something really bad happened in that bathtub to this day. Second thing is, sometimes Sometimes it sounded like children were running in the hallway, except we had no kids when we first moved there. But we always chalked it up to being that noise carried weird, and it was really our neighbor's kids from their house just carrying into our house since they lived only about 20 feet away and downhill from us. That does not sound likely. About two years into living there, things began to get really scary. There's honestly too many occurrences to recall in this story, or else it would be way too long, so I'll just tell you a few. One happened when I was pregnant with my son. I had this recurring nightmare that all the lights were out and I would keep trying to light up the house with candles, except there was a spirit in the house. The spirit was this indigenous woman who kept blowing out the candles and would hide in the dark, whispering things in a language I did not recognize. She had a snake tongue and war paint that went in a streak all across her face, but it lit up like bright red crackling embers. She had yellow eyes and long black fingernails and she was whispering to me. She was afraid of light. After I started having these dreams, the hauntings got much worse. One night, I was laying in bed next to the wall. I was home alone, and all of a sudden, there was the loudest bang noise right next to me on the outside of the house. I felt the vibration from the hip. I went to see what it was through the window, but there was nothing there. I was so scared, I was bawling. We also had guests stay with us for two weeks. It was my ex's friend and his girlfriend. The way our house was set up was the front of the house was the living room, dining room, and the kitchen, and then there was a hallway. The first room to the right was a small laundry room, and then there was the guest bed and bath on either side, and in the very back of the house was the master bedroom and bathroom. One day, the girlfriend was in the laundry room, and she swore she had seen my ex walk past her down the hallway to our bedroom and went to walk into the hallway towards the kitchen, but as she was rounding the corner, she almost hit into my ex and freaked out because she said she just saw him and it was impossible for him to be right there. There was also an entity that liked to wake up any guests we had staying at our house by choking or scratching them in their sleep, and one that liked hiding things. Choking and scratching? There was one that would throw things or break things. One that if it was there, you could very distinctly feel its presence because you'd be the most scared you have ever been in your life, like the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. And there was one I saw once that was translucent without any form, 
kind of like a blob. There was cold and hot spots in the house and the house had this weird way of getting really dark even though the lights were all on. When I was turning the guest bedroom into the nursery, we got a play mat for our son and woke up one morning to find that something had left huge scratch marks in the mats. We had no pets in the house at this point, but since my son and I have moved, we haven't experienced anything else. So thankfully, I think whatever was there stayed with my ex. Yo, why are you having a baby there and making a nursery if all that stuff is happening? Choking, scratching, breaking, hiding? You leave, especially before you bring a little baby into the world. I know that's easier said than done, and sometimes people just literally do not have the ability to move. But oh my goodness, that is really scary. I'm glad you guys are okay. I'm glad that you moved and everything's cool in your new place. I wonder if the thing had to do with your ex or had to do with the house. I'm going to say more with the house, right? Because you saw that like indigenous woman in your dreams. Maybe that, I wonder if you're on like some sort of old burial ground or something. And she was like warning you like, mm -mm -mm. I don't know, man, crazy. I hope you enjoyed this taste of just some of my favorites from this week. There are many, many more great shows available on Shortcast Club. Download the app from the iOS or Android app store. Search for Shortcast Club. That's two words. As always, please let me know what you think, or if you have any questions or feedback, you can email me at avi at shortcastclub.com. Thanks, and happy listening.